Before we get started today, I think we better address the elephant in the room. If you are listening to this at time of release, that is April 2020, the world has gone kind of bananas with the COVID-19 virus pandemic causing all sorts of havoc across the globe. As some of you will be aware, I live in New Zealand, and as of right now, we have been in lockdown for a week, and that will be the case for at least another three. I'm sure you have all been getting those silly emails from companies you have interacted with once 10 years ago, telling you about how they're combating the virus. God knows I have. So I don't want to harp on too much, but the fact of the matter is this. Hans will still continue through the lockdown, to the best of my ability. At this stage, I have enough content to get us through to about end of May, start of June. However, after that, I'm still formulating what I will do should I not be able to access research materials, which is a very real possibility. Additionally, this podcast, like many out there, is funded in large part by two groups, myself and our fantastic patrons. Unfortunately, my ability to pump as much funds into this project as I have in the past has reduced fairly significantly due to the current situation. This doesn't mean I'm going to be out on the streets or anything. As I said, Hans will still continue as much as I can make it, and all for free. All I ask is that if you have considered in the past to donate by becoming a patron or buying merch, and you have the means to do so, now would be the time. Links to Patreon and our merch are in the show notes. To those of you who are already patrons or bought merch, thank you. I am working hard to get you more patron episodes to make that contribution much more worthwhile. Anyway, that's enough real world crap, let's crack into it. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 36, I got a burning feeling. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as V and Sara. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Last time, we did a dramatic retelling of the story of Ponga and Puhihuia, what I dubbed the Māori Paris and Helen of Troy. Except it was way better because Puhihuia was a badass and beat the shit out of her mum's mates. This time, well, this time I've done something a bit cheeky. As some of you may know, last year I did an episode on the Pax Britannica podcast on Barnett Burns, an English sailor and trader who came to Aotearoa and had a pretty interesting life. For the next few episodes, I'll be covering his life as told mostly by himself and the odd other source here and there. I understand that some of you will have already heard this. You may have even found Hans through Pax Britannica due to that episode, which is awesome. Thanks for joining us on this adventure. However, you may be thinking you want to skip these episodes because you've already heard the info in them. And, alright, fair enough. But I will add that although I have used pretty much all the same audio, this is Hans, not Pax Britannica. Meaning, I've added some bits that I left out of that episode that I deemed either to be too much detail or too gruesome. In particular, the part where Burns goes into a fair amount of detail on the cannibalism he witnessed. So my advice would be to not skip these too hastily. As I just said, I have used a lot of the same audio, so please excuse any slight difference in style, as this was built for a slightly different audience. 
Hopefully though, you enjoy this tale that incorporates nearly everything we have learned thus far about pre-European Māori culture. Barnett Burns was born in around 1805, potentially in Liverpool. We don't really know what he was doing for his early years up until the age of around 13 or 14, which is where he joined the crew of a trading ship and took to the seas. He spent some time doing that in and around Jamaica specifically, until the ship returned to England and he was put into a Lancasterian school in London, which is basically a school practicing a specific method of education that we don't really care too much about. Again, we lose sight of him for a bit, presumably because all he was doing was getting the cane across his knuckles, but in 1827, when he was probably about 20 years old, he pops back up again sailing on the Wilna to Rio de Janeiro in modern Brazil. This is probably a good time to explain that most of the information going forward is from Burns' own book, which starts with the Wilna. He actually wrote about his time here in New Zealand, and it's pretty much the only source we have on him while he was here. So naturally, we need to take a lot of it with a grain of salt, as it can't really be corroborated with any other sources or evidence. It's all we got though, so let's press on. It's not clear how long the Wilner intended to stay in Rio, but Burns says there was a dispute between the captain and crew. What this was though, Burns doesn't remember saying it was, quote, something of very little consequence, end quote. The end result was certainly more consequential, as the entire crew was released of service, including Burns himself. Thankfully for him, though, Burns must have stayed somewhat out of the dispute, and perhaps even distinguished himself at sea, as he received a recommendation of good character from the captain, who also even put in a good word for him with another merchant. So clearly... Burns had impressed the captain enough for him to go out of his way to help him. This merchant then eventually led Burns to becoming the steward on the Nimrod, which was bound for Sydney, Australia. It's interesting to note that in Burns' book, Sydney is spelt S-I-D-N-E-Y for some reason. Once in Sydney, Burns must have been pretty sick of the seaman's life, as he told the captain he wanted to remain in town for a bit. As such, he was discharged from service once again, and given a recommendation of a merchant he should go see about getting work in town. Like back in Rio, this merchant didn't give him a job, but it did lead him to getting employment at the Bank of Australia. These sorts of repetitions appear a few times in Burns's book, especially in regards to numbers of people, which leads me to wonder how accurate his recount is. He was writing this book potentially a few years later, with the first copy appearing in 1835, so perhaps he just forgot or misremembered until some of the events blended together, rather than it being a malicious attempt to distort the truth. Again, without any other sources to compare, it's hard to tell, and we more or less have to take him at his word. Anyway, at the bank, he was... Uh... Actually, he doesn't say what he was doing, which is kind of annoying. What we do know is that he stayed there for two years before being, quote, persuaded by some old shipmates, end quote, to join them on a trip to the nearby land of New Zealand. Burns must have thought quite highly of his employer at the bank, a man by the name of W.H. Mackenzie Esquire, as Burns calls him. 
Because he writes that when Mackenzie was told that Burns wanted to resign to go back to a life at sea and onto New Zealand, Mackenzie, quote, behaved to me not only as a master, but acted in every way as my friend, end quote. What that meant in reality, Burns doesn't say, but this relationship obviously didn't sour over time, as Mackenzie and Burns would cross paths again. For now though, Burns jumped on the merchant ship Elizabeth and sailed for Aotearoa across the Tasman Sea to trade for Harakeke, New Zealand flax. Flax, of the New Zealand variety, was an important material for Europeans in the area around this time, and was of course even more important for Māori ever since their arrival in the mid-13th century. Both cultures used it for clothes and rope, the latter being of greater interest to Europeans in their sailing ships, among a variety of other things. The problem was that it was difficult to obtain harakeke in a form that allowed it to be weaved into useful items. It was a long and quite involved process that Māori had become very good at, and of course, in the natural European fashion, they tried to replicate and shortcut this process for mass production. They would eventually somewhat succeed in this, but that was in 30 years' time. For now, the only way to get good muka, the end product of flax that could be woven, was to trade with Māori, which naturally came with its own challenges. Burns, for his part, seems to have thrived in this environment during the eight months he stayed. He even overcame one of the major hurdles in trading with Māori, the language barrier, as he, quote, had an opportunity of acquiring the New Zealand language as fluently nearly as my own, end quote. Burns doesn't go into too much detail on this period of his life, other than the fact that he gained a huge love for Aotearoa. So much so, in fact, that as soon as he returned to Sydney, now spelt correctly, by the way, he would, quote, procure a berth, if possible, as trading master for any merchant from whom I could get employment, either to return or settle ashore, and trade on any of the islands or stop on board of a ship, end quote. So basically, his options were to either just go on a brief trading stint, like he had just done, but his preferred option was to settle down, set up a trading station, and live in New Zealand, probably somewhat indefinitely. Clearly, for whatever reason, he really fell in love with this land, something that you can see come up a few times in his book. Getting the trading station he wanted, though, wasn't a small ask. He would have to be trusted by his employer to act on his own independently, trading with Māori and keeping good relations with them, without seeing anyone under his boss's employ, or perhaps even seeing another Englishman or European for months. To get what he desired, Burns went back to his friend and former boss, Mackenzie, which was previously spelt with an S, but is now spelt with a Z. Mackenzie gave Burns a name, Montefort, who was a merchant looking to establish some trading stations in New Zealand for Harakeke Flax. And of course, he needed some people to run those stations. There was a catch, though. Montefort didn't want just any Joe convict off the Sydney streets to do this delicate work, which required charisma, diplomacy, business sense, and the ability to keep calm under the pressure of death when any possible help was thousands of miles and months away. Burns had already likely proven he had all these skills, 
working on various merchant vessels, ingratiating himself with the captains, and working in a bank. However, the most important thing Montefort was looking for was people who spoke Tadeo, the Māori language. And as we have already talked about, Burns just so happened to have spent eight months in country learning that very language. As such, he managed to get a berth on Montefort's ship as a trading master, once again bound for Aotearoa. Burns arrived in New Zealand in February of 1831 at the age of about 26. He was to be the sole trader for his employer in Mahia, a little outcropping of land at the northern end of Hawke's Bay on the North Island's east coast. Burns signed a contract with Montefort, which I found kind of interesting, so I'm going to state it here in full. Quote, it is hereby agreed between L. Baron Montefort Esquire and Barnett Burns that the said Barnett Burns shall proceed in the schooner Darling, now about to sail to the port of Mahia in New Zealand, there and then to commence bartering with the natives for flax and such trade as may be shipped under his charge per said vessel, and in fact to act as the sole and entire agent of the said L. Baron Montefort at the aforesaid port of Mahia or at any other port or place to which he may hereafter be directed to proceed. It is also understood that the said Barnett Burns is to be totally unconnected with any other establishment at New Zealand or elsewhere. That of such trade as may be from time to time forwarded to him, he is to render a just and true account, and that he is in every way to use his utmost exertions to promote the interest of his employer in consideration of which services the said Baron Montefort hereby agrees to pay the said Barnett Burns the sum of £4 per month to commence on the date of his sailing from Sydney, together with a commission of £5 per cent on all flax to be valued £12 per tonne weight. Should it be desired by the said Barnett Burns to relinquish the service of his above-named employer, it is understood that the said L. Baron Montefort is to have sufficient notice of such intention to enable him to send a person down to take possession of whatever trade or flax might be on hand. It is also expected that at such places as the said Barnett Burns may remain for any length of time, he will make use of every conciliatory means in his power towards effecting a permanent and friendly intercourse with the natives, and that he shall obey the instructions which may be from time to time forwarded to him by the said L. Baron Montefort, end quote. In case you zoned out there a bit, his contract stated all the usual things around conflicts of interest and notice of resignation, along with that he should forward the interests of his employer by, quote, affecting a permanent and friendly intercourse with the natives, end quote. As you are likely aware, Europeans did not hold Māori, or any indigenous people for that matter, in high regard during this time, given the language used when discussing them. Burns was to be paid £4 a month, which is probably around six to $700 in 2019 Kiwi money. He would also be paid a £5 commission on all flax valued at £12 per tonne, so probably a few thousand in today money. Given that the ship had sailed from Australia, which is west of New Zealand, the ship needed to go through Cook Strait between the North and South Islands to get to the East Coast where Burns would be left. Along the way, they dropped off other trading masters and built their houses for them, even trading with Māori a little bit too, and perhaps even witnessed to some violent conflict. This may have been in quote-unquote Taranakia, 
which is likely modern-day Taranaki, where he was told by local European settlers that they were on good terms with local iwi, tribes, but that neighbouring iwi had been posturing and that they expected to come to blows soon. This was something that was not uncommon during the time, and even before Europeans arrived after Captain Cook's rediscovery of the islands about 60 years prior. They also stopped for provisions at what he calls Entry Island, which is modern Carpety Island. Although it took them two weeks to cross the Tasman, Burns only reached Mahia after four months of travel from leaving Sydney, which, by the way, was now consistently spelt correctly. Burns actually describes how he felt upon his arrival, which I think really illustrates what we have already discussed. Quote, I arrived at my destination, Mahia, where I landed without a house being ready, a complete stranger, not a white man to be seen, not one residing within a hundred miles of me, end quote. For all his experience and adventure so far, the mid-twenties Barnett Burns was probably the most scared he had ever been in his life. This was made worse as the ship that brought him only stayed a couple of days and didn't even bother building him a house like it had for the other trading masters. Again, why this happened, he doesn't mention. Instead, he had to take his trading goods to land via waka, canoe, and leave them in the local rangatira's house. Rangatira being tareo for chief or noble. It's at this point that Burns adds some more to his earlier thought of loneliness. Quote, So here I was, amongst a set of cannibals, trust wholly and solely to their mercy, not knowing the moment when they might take my trade from me, and not only my trade, but my life. The chief, whom I had particularly selected to trade with, left me, so I had the whole charge on my own hands. I was obliged to carry my musket and constantly sleep with it by my side. In fact, I had to keep watch all the time. Then, for the first time since I took my fancy to visit New Zealand, I felt frightened at my situation. I knew I was not sure of my life and hour. End quote. In short, Burns was in an unfamiliar land with unfamiliar people and constantly feared for his life. Māori at this time had the power. They controlled trade and had the military strength to back it up. If the Rangatera chief wanted Burns dead, it would likely be done. Thankfully for Burns though, he managed to gain the trust and protection of the Rangatera chief called Awahi, who belonged to the Ngāti Kahununu tribe. After Burns was settled in, Awahi left to get flax to trade him for the goods he brought. Stuff like blankets, tobacco, iron tools, wool, leather, oil, and rum. Burns brought three more trade goods with him that were likely the thing that Awahi was most interested in though. Muskets and the shot and gunpowder to use them. To give you a brief summary of why he likely would have wanted those most, during this period, the musket wars were raging. These were a series of intertribal conflicts sparked by the arms race instigated by European trading of gunpowder weapons to Māori. Iwi tribes who possessed muskets had an inherent advantage over those that didn't, who would have had weapons that had been used in Aotearoa for centuries. Weapons like Taiaha, Patu and Tefatifa, 
spears, clubs, and a type of axe thingy, which were all close-range weapons in the style of warfare Māori were used to. So long-range muskets gave a significant advantage, or at least brought you up to par with your enemies. Anyway, back to Burns, whose trading of these items to Awahi and Natikahununu apparently pleased all of them greatly, getting him off to a good start in establishing that quote-unquote friendly intercourse. It soon led to some intercourse of the other variety, as Burns married Awahi's daughter, Amutawa, eventually having three children with her throughout his time in Aotearoa. This state of affairs, of Burns trading various goods to the locals for flax, continued for 11 months, not hearing anything from Montefiore until a ship was sent to collect his flax. Montefiore had sent a man by the name of Mr. Sims, with a letter that read, quote, Mr. Burns, sir, I've authorised Mr. Sims to make such arrangements with you relative to your stay, removal, or otherwise at New Zealand, as he may deem most proper. I am, sir, your most obedient servant, L. Baron Montefiore. End quote. So Sims was to assess Burns's progress and decide if he should remain employed. Clearly, Sims was not impressed with what he saw, as he elected to shut down the station. Burns gave up his flax without pay, and he was pretty pissed about it. As were the local iwi tribe, at the realisation that the flow of various European goods would cease. And really to say that is quite the understatement. According to Burns, the tribe was so fucked off that they were ready to fight the ship's crew to get the flax back, along with anything else they had. In fact, one person had tried to steal a cask of gunpowder from the ship, but was caught and severely punished by his peers, quote, according to their laws and habits, end quote. At some point, Burns's wife was held captive on the ship, perhaps due to these tensions. And remember, she was the Rangatira chief's daughter, so it was within the iwi's interest not to be brazen. Eventually, all parties agreed that Burns would be paid in trade goods for his confiscated flax, and that his wife would be released. It was at this point that Burns had a choice to make. Since he was relieved of service, he could choose to get on the ship and return to Sydney to look for more work, which Mr. Sims was bound by his employer to facilitate. Or he could remain in New Zealand with the people he had developed bonds with, but with no guarantee of any pay. Once again, Burns himself quite nicely captures his feelings in his book. Quote, Words cannot express in what state my feelings were. Suffice to say, it would have been better if I had been dead. The ship which contained all my friends and countrymen, leaving me at one side, and on the other, my wife, who would not quit her native country. And as she was on the point of lying in, I could not bring myself to leave the country with the ship. End quote. Burns was clearly torn between those he saw as going back to the familiar and staying in the strange land he had grown to love with his wife. Though, whether this was because he cared deeply for her, or out of obligation, it isn't clear. Whatever the case may be, all Burns could do was watch as the ship sailed out of Hawke's Bay, and he was left at the edge of the world. A European, in a Māori society, with an uncertain future. Next time... 
we continue with Barnett Burns's life in Aotearoa, now faced with the prospect of having to remain here indefinitely. What will he do and how will he cope being in a world drastically different to his own? Not the world of kings, honour and Jesus, but the world of rangatira, mana and tāne mahuta. Find out on the next exciting episode of Hans. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaltaroa at gmail.com or Twitter at historyaltaroa or Facebook at historyaltaroa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch from historyaltaroa.com, or rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. It means a lot and helps us grow, spreading the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>